welcome to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller, and I'm thrilled to share my conversation with today's guest. Jessica Godot is an activist, journalist, and an author with a PhD in literature who has written for publications such as Newsweek, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, and many others. Despite all of Jessica's accomplishments, the turning point in her life came in 2007 when she met and volunteered with a group of Burmese refugees. Meeting these refugees was life-changing for her. Since that day, Jessica has developed a passion to ethically and authentically share the stories of people who have become vulnerable due to the atrocities of war and persecution, whose stories might otherwise never be heard. In our conversation, Jessica tells her personal journey that led her to write her new book, After the Last Border, where she shares the real-life stories of two women who have narrowly escaped from their home countries and begin the life-saving process of resettling in America. Jessica also shares how her faith has led her to be a voice and advocate for immigrants and refugees as she encourages others to truly love our neighbors. Well, Jessica, we will get started. Thank you for joining me on the Her Story Speaks podcast. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much. You have amazing guests that come on that. So I just think this is a great conversation. I'm so glad you have me are going to have me. Well, I will say with the guests, like every time I'm getting ready to have somebody, including you, I'm just like pinching myself because I'm like, am I really going to talk to this person? Did they really say yes to me? So same with you because you are a author right now. Um, You've been an author, but your latest book, After the Last Border, has been featured twice in the New York Times, Editor's Pick. I mean, you are up there. You are accomplished. Um, So congratulations with that. And I just appreciate you giving me this time to talk to me. Of course. I'm very excited about this. I will say your book was, has been a treat for me. It's one of the few books that I'm not finished with. So I apologize for that because I, I don't hardly ever read fiction books, like mm-hmm. never, because I'm usually mm-hmm. reading the podcast guest books. They're all nonfiction, usually kind of their stories. But this has felt like some aspects of a fiction book. Mm-hmm. And it's just been, it's, it's a hard, heartbreaking story, but of hope. I mean, because it's the real life of... Yeah two women that you know and met and it's felt I hate to say it's felt like a treat but I guess in my reader mind it has because it's just been so different than other books that I'm so glad I don't want and I don't want people to think it's like it's so sad and hard I mean there are some really sad parts of it but we worked really hard these are not sad women these are women who've been through hard things and are hilarious and really fun and wonderful too and so I'm so glad to hear that it doesn't just feel like I was always afraid that people are just gonna be like oh well here it goes here's another sad story and I I just really want people to connect with I mean these are two women I fell absolutely in love with and I really want to make sure that people have the chance to to hear from them yes and it's definitely I mean it is not just a total of a a downer I mean the theme for this year's podcast is um beauty and the broken and it's Mm. it is I mean I think your book fits it perfectly these women's stories fit it perfectly because it it is such a hard broken stories but beauty is still to be found in these women Mm -hmm. and this this interview will differ a little bit because your book is not necessarily your story Um, Mm -hmm. it is the story of these two women and we Mm -hmm. will get into that a little bit later but your story is what led you to these two Mm -hmm. women so that's what we'll start off talking about Um, before we dive into your story though just give us a quick kind of got ahead of ourselves an intro of like who you are in your day-to-day don't share your your story but just where you live what you do in day-to-day life I live in Austin, Texas. I'm writing full-time now. I used to be, uh, well, I guess I am still an academic. I always struggle with this. I have a PhD in poetry and translation studies and 
like spent a lot of time studying Brazilian poetry in the 1950s. And my life shifted when I met a group of refugees. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But I had these two parallel tracks. I ran a nonprofit with some friends helping uh, Burmese refugee artisans here in Austin. And my church was deeply involved. And we had this beautiful community around these refugees. And when things shifted in 2015, I was running a writing center here in town. I had a postdoc at Southwestern University and then was running the writing center. And I just thought I can't sit back and not do something. And eventually that led to me leaving academia in order to write full time and has led to this, this whole thing. So it is, it is definitely a career shift for me, but one that is deeply grounded in my faith and in my sense of um, like my moral compulsion not to stand back when, when horrible things are being said about people that I know and love. Yeah, and that's why your story is so fascinating because it's like you did have a total shift. Yeah. Um, and, and meeting women and their stories is what changed the course of your own story. So Absolutely. start us back earlier in your story, just your childhood, where you grew up, where you did you always have a passion for justice? And so just start us back kind of your origin story and yeah. take us from there. Yeah, I grew up in Abilene, Texas. Um, my parents were both Bible professors at Abilene Christian University, now retired. And I, um, well, my mom still teaches there still. Um, my faith comes to me the way that many of us that grew up in in that area do. Like, I think my my relatives, it was like the 1850s when somebody was converted and like, it's like generations deep. Yeah. And um, so I part of what has been so so hard for me about this time period is that my roots are... Um, I mean, I, I voted for Bush in the first election. My, my roots are the kind of person that doesn't talk about politics because it's impolite and doesn't want to ruffle feathers. But yet um, I was raised from, you know, I went to ACU, Abilene Christian University, and was taught that um, when you see injustice, you speak out against it. And so I feel like, and I think a lot of us feel this way, um, my faith and my desire to do good in the world and my trying to listen to what God is calling me to do has remained exactly the same. And the political ground has shifted beneath my feet so drastically, it, it's still, I still feel like I'm kind of shocked and reeling. And so um, my, you know, I, I married a missionary kid and we lived in Brazil and worked at a church for a while and eventually um, came to Austin so that I could get a PhD. And he is, um, has his MBA and is, um, working in business and we just kind of thought well that was something that we did and it was part of who we were but we're going to have this life and yeah for both of us this is um, it, it, these teachings go so deep I mean it is such a part of who we are and we're very grateful and lucky to have families that and blessed to have families that feel the same way with us and have supported us and shifted with us and so this is not I think for a lot of people it's really painful because the backlash happens within your family and our families have made this shift as well, and so we have families that are that really care about and kids that we're raising that really care about what happens to people in the margins. And so I feel like this book is an act of faith, even though it's not published with a Christian publisher and speaking only to um, an audience of faith. Right? Like this book is is like the truest part of my principles and my values is to to describe and show what is happening with people who are being caught up in really oppressive systems. And it used to be that I would have that conversation about people outside of our country. And now I'm having that conversation about people within our country. And I've also woken up to, through my doctoral work and through years of this, the, the fact that this has often been an oppressive system, that this is not a shift that has happened, but that the last few years have revealed a deep, you know, 
deep injustice is embedded in the core of who we are. And that's really painful and it's really hard for us to recognize. Yeah, and we'll, I do want to get dive deeper into that later, just the policies in this country mm-hmm. um, and where we're at now, because your book, that's why it's so unique. It does a beautiful job of weaving the history of immigration and refugees in the United States. Um, and I learned so much and I was really shocked. Well, we'll get into that. I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to go out the wrong way if I start getting into that now. Um, so you definitely had that, you were brought up with that passion for justice mm-hmm. and helping those loving your, like really loving your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that things really shifted for you. Um, you said in 20, in 2007, you volunteered at a fall festival at a local mm-hmm. community center to translate for Spanish speakers. Um, instead, you met a group of Burmese refugees who changed your life forever. So can you take us back to that and what that yeah. was and how that started to just change your life? Yeah, I was in graduate school and had a baby. And when I say my plate was full, I am married to the most wonderful person, Jonathan, who spends a lot of time. Like, I'm always full of ideas. And he's like, can we actually get this done? He's great. If anybody's into the Enneagram, he's a one and I'm a three. Okay. And I'm like, let's do all this stuff. And he's like, all right, let's actually make sure that we, you know, take care of things first. And so we had a 10 month old baby and we were just there to volunteer. I was taking a nap and was really tired and almost didn't go. And I had spent two summers in Thailand in college and um, knew that there were groups of people around, not just in Thailand, but like a, it's a particular group of people called the Karen people that are, that live throughout Southeast Asia so I was there, Jonathan and I both, and we lived in South America. He speaks Portuguese. He speaks Portuguese natively, and we both speak Portuguese and Spanish. So we were there just translating some healthcare stuff at this local church that's, that functions as a community center in the neighborhood, and in walk all of these people wearing the traditional hand-woven um, clothes. And I was like, what in the world is happening? Like, who are these people? Why are they here? Why are they here in Austin? I knew nothing about refugees other than, like, what – I just knew the term. I really had no idea about refugee resettlement. And I got to know Muna that first day. Her daughters were little. She was pregnant. She was my very first friend. And anybody who's had that kind of like intercultural relationship, you know, when like you don't speak the language of someone, but you like smile at each other and you connect and there's just like some, some part of you that connects with them. There was just a resonance there. So I went back and took her, her daughter had sandals and there was a cold snap and they didn't have shoes. And so kind of typical, um, helper at the time I thought well I'll take her shoes and sat down with her on her porch and we just hung out and our babies played together and I loved it and I loved her and by like January we had started um, a friend of mine Karen George and some other people from our church had started just like showing up and saying what what do you need can we they said there were a bunch of women at home a lot of stay-at-home moms who were not able to work because they were taking care of their own kids or they were like the grandmothers taking care of the kids while the parents worked and so we started teaching them English and eventually they asked us, could we sell their homemade beautiful creations that they weave out of this yarn? And so we started this women's cooperative and Muna was the translator and she was the one that kind of connected us with everybody. And so that was that was my relationship with refugees for seven years until the very last artisan got a full-time job. So we worked with like more than 30 women, one guy, there was one man in the mix, but mostly women. And then at the end of that, we successfully finished because everybody got a job and we divided what we had and has to help the last two women start their own businesses on Etsy and called it, you know, a successful conclusion to that beautiful chapter. And it, like my, my kids were raised that way. Like they spent most of their afternoons out hanging out at um, apartments. It was just really a beautiful way to, to have yeah. like family time. 
Yeah, I got goosebumps when you started telling that just because it's like you wanted to sleep, you didn't really want to go, but that's yeah. where you met Moon on. It's like that is she, for those of you who haven't read your book, I mean, half of the book is about, yeah. or a third of it is about her story yeah. and her life as a refugee in this country. Um, and you had no idea that that no is idea. you wouldn't, didn't go into that with that intention. So no. at what point did you think like, just start learning her and knowing her story mm-hmm. more? Did you think like, I think I'm going to, I should write about this. And um, really, it took a very long time. In fact, I deeply wish that I had taken notes (laughs) for those years, right? I had no intention of writing about any of this. So my my doctorate's in issues of representation. I mean, it's in poetry, but it's really like all the ways that white women do damage in literature. And I know... That's fascinating. That could be a whole subject or a whole topic for a podcast. I had no Uh idea that that was what you were focused on. Uh Okay, fascinating. But yeah, my favorite book that I talk about all the time was a title called White Women Writing White. And it was like, right. please don't read it. It's an academic book about Sylvia Plath and Elizabeth. Oh, okay, Bishop. so not like a recommended everybody read. No, okay. but just no, not not to recommend. <laughs> just unless you really love Elizabeth Bishop and Sylvia Plath. Gotcha. Okay. But just the title of like, here are the ways that white women have taken on the stories of other people and appropriated them, right? And so... So, this was not my desire to write a book at all about refugees. Like they are yeah, because that would kind of go against like what you had learned. What and I studied. learned, yeah, absolutely. That's and so I had no intention of it. In fact, with the opposite, like I had a conversation with someone who's not in the book. Um, who at one point I said, I cannot write about your story because to do so would be to appropriate it. And she said. I'm sorry. I want to like, and this is where we kind of get into some of these cultural things that like I am coming from, you know, my background, like the liberal side of academics and like these kind of progressive values, which I still think are very important. And yet she was saying, so you can write, you know how to talk to people at editors, you know me and you know my story and you know, I can't use my name because my family's in danger. And you're telling Mm -hmm. me that you won't write my story. I don't understand. And I, it changed everything for me. So I still very firmly believe that there, if there are, if there is anyone from this community that is able and willing to write about their story, my job is to elevate it. And so at the back of my book, I have a list of further readings. There are so many former refugee and former displaced writers who are doing excellent work. And I have become friends with a lot of them and elevate their work as much as possible. And there is a tiny, tiny sliver of people. I started to realize in about 2015, that there was a role for me as someone who knew this community who could tell the urgent new stories of people who were going through this now because their family members are in danger. They could use pseudonyms. I could hide things and tell things and give them control. So I view myself as a conduit for the stories of people who otherwise would not be able to have their stories heard. Yeah, that's such a great example of just like real life changing your whole paradigm because what you thought you knew when it's studied and were an expert in, it's like, okay, real world slaps you in the face too. Here is how you maybe you're supposed to be used. And I don't think most people can do that. I think it takes a relationship, right? Yes, for sure. So you mentioned in 2015 was another big shift for you because of what happened with the refugees. So can you share just a little bit about what happened with policy then and then why that was life-changing for you as well as far as your journey ahead? Yeah. So, you know, I had these seven years with, I mean, it really was like, honestly, when I look back on it, it was pretty idyllic. Like it was really beautiful. The kids, like you, I just, I don't know. We always talk about like kids don't play enough outside anymore and they don't. And, and I had this experience. It was like a little UN in the parking lot where kids are like playing soccer and I would drop my girls off and not see them for hours. And they were like, 
going over to this friend's house that's serving them like, you know, chai tea. And then they're running over for noodles at this house. And it was just this incredibly beautiful little neighborhood. And um, when everybody kind of got jobs, we remained friends. Like I still go over there and hang out. Well, not in the pandemic, but before the pandemic, hang out with people and then thought like, this is it. And and then in 2015, I, I distinctly remember sitting in my office at Southwestern University, which is such a, it's a lovely campus. And it was just, I mean, my office wasn't beautiful, but like I was kind of living my dream. Like I had gotten this academic job and I just remember sitting there thinking, I cannot believe that people are using the term refugee as if it means terrorist. Like how, how they just don't, they don't understand what this means, right? Like, and it was for those of us who have known refugees, it felt like a sucker punch overnight. So the, and this is stuff that I learned in my research for decades since World War II, the U.S. has supported refugee resettlement in a deeply bipartisan way. Um, I did an interview with a woman who passed the Refugee Act, Congresswoman, Congresswoman Elizabeth Holtzman last week. And she was, I was like, so what were the tensions when you passed it? She was like, there were none. There were no tensions. Like nobody had a problem with this. We, so we resettled almost a million uh, refugees from Vietnam and from that the whole Southeast Asian area, Cambodia and Hmong refugees and others, because we believed that it was right and our whole country did. And there was just not, it was just not a problem. And so for us to get to the point where people began acting as if um, terrorists are trying to come through the most well-vetted, securest way to get to our country, I, I realize this, there's just a significant lack of information. And I, so one of my favorite former refugee friends was a Chen pastor who had protested the government in Myanmar by himself. And I asked him why he did that. And he felt like God took him, picked him up. He's been a Christian his whole life. He went on a hunger strike to get his Bible. And, and he said he felt like God picked him up by the scruff of his neck and shook him and said, you have to do this thing and then took him over to protest. And it, for me, it felt like that. I And I gave a speech this past week at Appling Christian University talking about that, like what you do as a person of faith when you feel like there is just this clear, you have to do this thing. And so for me, yeah. as hard as this has been, it's also what I think I'm, I'm called to do. Yeah. And you, um, as we said earlier, I mean, you are so quote qualified. I mean, you knew refugees, you had that relationship and that, I think that is the critical difference with you and mm-hmm. telling these stories um so really i mean you became a storyteller at that mm-hmm. at that point yeah. um, then in 2017 a travel ban went into place yeah and that kind of up things a level two correct with with your role and telling stories so do you want to I mean, talk just a little bit about that that feels like i love how you really kind of up things it felt like things went from i feel like and i feel like people maybe i mean there's just been so much and I feel like people don't always, like, I, it's hard for me to keep track of things that have happened just related to refugees alone. I think the the cycle of the news right now is so exhausting. I find myself really overwhelmed by it. And I'm like, at this point, part of my job is following it, right? And so- For, for sure. And that's what I, again, recommend mm-hmm. your book because you lay things out so well in the history of it. And even those of us that think we know a little bit, there are so many more layers there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was for me too, yeah. Yeah, and your book, Focus on re- focuses on refugees um, mm-hmm. and not so much. We're not talking about immigrants or education visas. I mean, we're talking refugees. Um, Specifically, can you will you define that word? That might be yeah. a good place before we get into 2017 and what. Yeah. So, um, I, refugees are um, all of these fit under the immigrant category. Um, economic migrants are people that come. We view them as people that come in order to find access to jobs. 
I also have a deep well of compassion for those people and am concerned sometimes when we don't act as if they're deserving, but they're different from asylum seekers and refugees. Asylum seekers are people who bring paperwork and stories of persecution across the border. And for the most part in the US, those people come from Central and South America. Sometimes people get over to Central America and cross the border, but that's, it's not as common. And then, um, I mean, this is a, like a big, these are like, I'm trying to do this quickly. Yes, so that's yes. like, right. This is and the then, Cliff Notes version. Cliff Notes version. Sure. Yeah, there are a lot of exceptions. <laughs> and then the um, refugees are people who are able to prove to um, UNHCR, which is the United Nations Refugee Branch, that they have a well-founded fear of persecution or death in their home countries. And so this can be people that are going to be killed because of their ethnicity. That's what happens a lot. People in civil war, like what happened in Rwanda when one group turned against the other. And so everyone that was a member of that group was being targeted because of their ethnicity. So that's how we view that. And in the book, I go through like how the, how the views around the world have shifted on what it means to be a refugee. But since 1980, the United States has had a really well-established federal program um, in which presidents are allowed to say, we're going to have this many or this many, and they kind of set the number, but nobody has gotten down nearly this low. And we receive refugees from around the world. And it has it's really just a beautiful program. It's a lot of faith-based people that, that six of the nine national agencies are faith-based, and they spend and they work with... Um, these bureaucratic, like the State Department and all, I don't want to get into all of it, but like there's just, it's really a beautiful and remarkable program. And that's really this book. I had no intention of writing a love letter to a federal program, but that's that's what ended up happening. I was shocked and, and amazed at how beautiful this thing was looking back on it now. I know, I felt that too, like, well, America is not that bad. Well, gosh darn it, we have had some love in this country before, like, because I think when you're just focused on the now, we think, well, gosh, Mm -hmm. we've just always just been Mm -hmm. awful and hate, but it's really, you have woven that so well into it, and just things that I was not aware of, that Republicans historically um, have a record of allowing more refugees yeah, in this country. Absolutely. I mean, and Bush was one of the highest numbers yes. of, um, and just, so it's not a book that's like just slamming Republicans or this country no. at all. I mean, it paints a beautiful picture, but then it also is like, where did we, how we got here now? And of course the troubled times in it. I mean, we had of course, periods of history perfect. where, where absolutely. it wasn't beautiful at all. Right. Was, um, but no, your book did a beautiful job with that. Okay. So that's the difference with refugees. And for people that don't know, I'm sure people have to know this, but it is very difficult. You don't just say like, I'm going to die or I think I'm going to be, I mean, there's layers of paperwork to prove that you, and it's a long, long process. In Um, fact, many of us were concerned before any of this started at how restrictive it is. There there are people in families. I talked to someone last week from Syria whose sisters were not allowed to come. They, They went through exactly the same thing. There's no rhyme or reason for it. Her parents and one of the daughters were allowed to come to the United States and the sisters remained in danger. This is fairly common. So it's not as if, when I say people are, I mean, it is like an incredibly, um, it is so such a tight, 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 tight window of people who are allowed to be resettled, right? We're almost, we're up to almost 80 million displaced people in the world. And the United States was allowing it at most 110,000 in the last 10 years or so. And so it's so that was like, the most, that was the that, height of 110. Okay. I can, I can look at the exact figures. That's that okay. But, right, that's, but that gives us an that. idea. Right. Right. Whereas tell us the average in the last couple of years where well last year um yeah, the Trump us- administration got it down to 18,000 and less than 10,000 have come over so i mean the the minuscule levels and we're not the only country that's resettling of course but 
looking back at resettlement, the United States has always led the charge in this. Like we have, we were the people that recognized, and we did this because we recognized the depth of what happened in the Holocaust and swore we would never do this again. Did you know the word genocide was invented about the Holocaust? I didn't know this. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. I also, I also didn't know what you share in your book, which I was sharing with my 17 year old that I'm not going to give away any very much of the book at all. But if we're talking about the Holocaust, which is fascinating that after we liberated the camps, Mm-hmm. That those then served as like refugee, like the yes. people stayed in them in the yes. horrific conditions and with all the yeah. memories. Like, where, the how only, did I miss that chapter in U.S. history? The only option they had was to either wear their prison clothes or or Nazi guard uniforms, right? And we still do camp. So part of what is so so frustrating and hard for those of us who've been paying attention to this for years is that there were already things that needed to be fixed about refugee resettlement. Um, the metaphor that I've been thinking a lot about is it's like a wall. It's like you're redoing your house and you need to take out a wall. And what you do is put dynamite all around your house and blow the whole house up. And you're like, got the wall down. I mean, what a really, it, like, I mean, I, I guess that's one way to do it. But what we've done instead of fixing any of the problems is just destroy the whole thing. That's right. Good and the bad. And and it. so going back to the, the travel ban in 2017, um, I had begun writing about this and I had put out a call um, really in starting in 2015 and I, I couldn't keep up with it. And it's, it's hard for me. I, I don't want to concentrate on my own stress in this, but, but that's okay. I, because, I mean, this is your story and why you're passionate about this. So I think that's okay. Just how you were inundated. I mean, yes. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like it, like today is a good example of this. So I have a relative who's pretty upset with me because of my speaking out and she's sending me messages that are, they're painful about how my heart is full of hatred, which is not the case. And then I have a, uh, someone from um, Iraq that's writing me every day sends pictures of his precious babies because they were caught up in the situation. And so I did an interview with him the other day. He has a, an 11 year old son whose English is impeccable. He's super cute. He's the age of my middle daughter. And then a four year old little girl and a two year old little girl. And this four year old little girl kept sticking her tongue out at me the whole time we're doing this interview over WhatsApp. You know how babies are? They're like making faces at themselves. Yes, and I'm yes. like, trying not to cry because they are stuck in a situation in Iraq. They were supposed to leave. And the day that they, their appointment to get out, he served as a, he helped with internet for the 101st infantryman air force division in Iraq and was supposed to get out because he had been kidnapped and threatened. And so he finally got his interview 10 years later in 2016. And it was the day that Trump was elected. And so their second interview was scheduled for the travel ban. So he was scheduled after the travel ban. So he was supposed to go, supposed to be a refugee, supposed to come to the United States. And instead he's been stuck for four years in this and has had two other babies. And so he keeps sending me pictures like, this is my two-year-old. Please, please don't let her die. I'm so worried about the future of my family. And I'm just thinking like, how can I? That's a lot, Jessica. (laughs) That is a lot because reading about the stories is one thing, but you have those relationships and people talking to you. And like, that's, that's the thing with these policies like they're real life people behind them yeah it's, it's not just oh huh well we're safe we get our jobs like no there's real yeah. life people dying and children dying and that's yeah. where the whole pro-life it's like that is what is just tearing me up like okay yeah. there are so many lives though that are really yeah. dying there's more than just the pro unborn baby's life like there's yeah. real lives here uh, I mean and how can you make people care this is the thing that I Sorry, I'm like tearing up a little bit. No. Like, how can I communicate this well enough so that people will care? I see this. When I first started writing about this in 2016, there were families around me that I love deeply. Um, the travel ban happened on the day that one of my friends here had relatives that were in Jordan that were supposed to be resettled. So I just 
started tweeting about what they were hearing. They were there at the airport. They were ready to come. They were told that they had to go back. They had sold everything. They had kids. They're like pictures of their family. And they're like, oh, you can't come anymore. So I started tweeting about it. And this tweet got shared like tens of thousands of times. And that's how I started writing about it because it just, everything went viral. And so I have done everything I can possibly do to kind of shout as much as possible into the void. These are people. So Sahazma's story happens. Part of what, so Hazma is from Syria. The war in Syria started less than 10 years ago in 2011. She was just at home with her kids. Her grandbabies were coming over. Her neighbor's kids started um, saying graffiti against the government because the government has been oppressive to them and they were tortured. And then people rose up because their babies were being tortured, much like the unrest that's happening around the world, right? I mean, the, our country right now. And instead of responding, I mean, I'm not saying what the, our government's response has been reasonable, but the Syrian government is obviously next level. And they brought, they surrounded the cities with missiles and they like bombed the city. And so this whole story is a regular, normal grandmother who wanted to just have Friday afternoon lunches with her family. And what happened to her and then she came over here right before the travel ban. And so I don't want to give the ending of the story away. But right. Like, don't, because I haven't finished it I know. yet. I told you. I'm almost. But, but, <laughs> but for those, again, Hasnot is the other character, the, mm-hmm. the character, the other woman's mm-hmm. story that you're telling in the book. And it is, I don't know how many, for her story, I had to reread parts because it was mm-hmm. just like, you're kidding me, that happened. No, mm-hmm. did they really blow that? Did they really? Because we just can't get our minds around that in this country. As many faults as this country has. Oh my gosh. It just makes you realize like for the most part, I mean, it's still holding right now. Right. Yes. Yes. When you see when it falls apart and that's what, you know, part of what I am really hoping in this is that, so Hasna and Amina is the name of the translator. And I, we told, she told me the story over two years, every two weeks, like we ate lunch together. We switched houses. They would serve me at their houses. And then I would come over and make things that were not nearly as delicious as the food that she made me. And we just sat together for like five or six hours every two weeks. And it, I don't have any relationship like this. Like I got so deep into her story and who she is. And it was like your very best girlfriend sitting around talking at this point, I don't understand Arabic, but I know a lot of the things that she's talking about because she'll come back. And so it was just this incredible resonance and flow and her like, um, the story I often, I, I don't know, again, I don't know how to, how to write about this. I haven't been able to write about this. One time I left an interview, it was one of the hardest interviews we had done about her family, like her entire point, the entire goal, she just wanted her family to be safe. And so everything she did from the minute that the, the war started in Syria was how can I keep my kids safe, which, you know, I would do too, right? Absolutely. And so one time I was going home um, on the highway and I saw, this is really terrible, I'm so sorry. I saw a kitten that had just been run over and was still kind of reeling, like um, was still walking. And I like, I saw, I have goosebumps from it. Like that's the level of just like, that's what it felt like for Hasna. I just like that she was tiny and this thing came at her. And then we're like, oh, I'm sorry. We just don't want to, we don't want you and your babies over here. Like it is what the debate that is happening is so ludicrous right now. This is a precious mom who like her grand I wish I could show you pictures her family members are still in danger so we can't share this but like her grandbabies are beautiful and they have these little pigtails and she is missing out on I mean I, I can't even imagine this my, my mom would crawl across a desert to get to my yeah. children right yeah. like you can't miss out on these years and, and they're just gone because our government decided that they don't deserve to be together anymore. I mean, right. That it's America first. Right. And that's not even entirely true either. It's acting like America's not 
first if we let yeah. refugees in. Um, and it's you saying this, debate. yes, I mean, I, I tear up too because I'm thinking as a mom and that's what right? I want listeners to understand that most are women and most are, a lot are moms. Yeah. Like, what would you do if it was you and your children that you were yeah. trying? You would do anything. And yeah. I think that's the compassionate side that both of us want to communicate to yes. people. But it's not like, well, make them legal, you know, like if yeah. they're not here illegally, then I'm sorry, you know. And like she we'll would just, be here legally too. That's yeah. what's also so frustrating is like, you know, what keeps her out is that she's Muslim. And that she's from Syria. And we have these horrific misconceptions of what this country was. Syria is not a place of war. Syria is a place of hospitable people who live together beautifully. And it was a very reasonable country until this, um, until the Assad regime got in there. And they are so, they're so proud of their civilization and the poetry that they've written and the food that they have and like who they are as a country. And it is not this kind of like war-torn, terrible place. It's a really beautiful place. And we have missed that in just dismissing millions of people because of where they're from. I mean, I, I get, hate it when people get mad at me or act like I'm a certain way because I'm from Texas or because I'm, you know, know. whatever I, I label, right? Went and, through my mind a little bit with knowing you're right? Texas. Right? <laughs> just kidding you. But no, we do that all the time. <laughs> and mean, especially, sure, so. I was not born and raised in Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, we do that all the time. And I think right. another point with what you're saying is, um, like with Hasna, is it Hasna? Am I saying Hasna? that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. She wanted, I mean, she had a beautiful house. She wanted nothing yeah. more than to stay there yeah. and have her courtyard. And yeah. we think like, oh, they just want to come into America and steal our resources. I mean, not yeah. we, I'm generalizing that, but some yeah. people do think that. And I think with, um, you paint a very clear picture in the book that when when they come here that it is not just it's hard yes of like course it is. gosh it's so hard I mean yeah. they often just want to go back I mean the, the camp the resettlement camp was more appealing than being here at some points because yeah. of the life here being so hard um, and where are they supposed to go I mean this is the thing that we keep asking right like literally war devastated the entire country of Syria. There are more displaced people internally and externally in Syria than almost I, I think than any conflict since World War II where are they supposed to go? Like they're not, nobody's sitting around going, you know what, it would be fun. Let's bomb, let's let's ask the government right. to bomb our home so that right. we can like maybe get a chance to go to the United States. What an incredibly, right. like when you read it, this, and this is part of why I wanted to start the story. So I wanted to, to work against the stereotype that we often have of immigrants and refugees as if coming to the United States is like the end of the story and it's a happy ending. Like, yeah. you know, they yeah. went through these hard things and then they crossed a desert. There's always like across the desert, across an ocean. And then in the story, everything's great. And they got saved by West and we're so grateful and happy. And what I wanted to show for Hazma, this is the wrong ending to the story. I really want that ending to feel jarring because it is jarring. She is still reeling. This trauma is still great. She spends all of her time, she and her husband still don't sleep because they're spending all their time on WhatsApp and face. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of time that she spends talking to her children and grandchildren all over the world, of course. And so she's not sitting around going, oh, I'm so grateful, this is wonderful. She's thinking, how can I possibly save my family? Like that, she's stuck in that place. And it is, it remains the most pressing thing for her. And I want us to recognize that um, this isn't, it really matters to me that people hear me say this. I do not have this kind of deep gut level reaction to politics because I happen to be on one side of the political aisle and this is a different one. In fact, in writing this book, I 
I, I'm significantly more centrist than I used to be, and I'm significantly more bipartisan than I used to be. And I will tell you immediately that George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, Ronald Reagan were some of the best presidents in terms of refugee resettlement. And so if we make this, like if we dismiss one side as if that's partisan and the other side isn't partisan or everybody's kind of like this, and, you know, all politicians are bad. What is happening now is unlike anything we've ever seen in our country. And that's part of why a lot of us are rising up to talk about it. Not because I'm some kind of partisan hack job at all, but because right. I'm a Christian who believes that my faith compels me to speak out against injustice. Right. You, you talk about a little in the book when Trump's initial speeches before he got elected were America first and yeah. closing the borders and the horror, the names he called the refugees and immigrants. I mean, at that point, did you start taking notice and being alarmed and how kind of... It's not just Trump. It was. Yeah, it you're was right. A, That's a good point. It is, and it is not. And tr- I want to be so clear that, like, electing, like, working against one person is not the problem. That's a really this good is, point. This is a massive shift that we had in our country in terms of the way that we're able to talk about people. It's not just refugees either. And if we separate this as if refugees is something that we can care about, but not other people, the way that we are talking about people of color and other groups that have traditionally been marginalized, including refugees, has really shifted. And using this language, it's, it's not okay. It just, it can't be okay. And I, I also feel like these, the, the binaries that we use as if one candidate is pro-life and one candidate isn't when, right. I, you and I both have probably done some research in this, like uh, the abortion rates go down under democratic presidents. These are complex issues, right? And Very. so really wanting to understand, like I was raised as a Christian to be countercultural. We were doing a Devo the other day at my house and I told my husband, I had not realized this, how often Jesus responds to the Pharisees and Sadducees with critical thinking skills, right? Like you want to put me in this box and you want to put me in this other box and I'm not going to do it. It's actually like a Jesus-based response. And I feel like that is exactly where I want people of faith to come to right now. I'm not advocating for you to join some political party. I'm saying use your critical thinking skills to notice who is being oppressed and let's speak out on the side of justice. I'm always going to be on that side because I, that's the, the faith I was raised in and that's what I believe in now. Yes, I agree. I am, I'm totally with you on that. Mm-hmm. And um, what would you say though, to the people that are listening and are thinking they still believe some things they hear about, well, our country wouldn't be safe. I mean, so many yeah. of the refugees or immigrants are criminals or murderers. Yeah. It's like, what would you say to that? The top two myths, I guess, that one, and then they're mm-hmm. taking our jobs and this economy yeah. can't handle that right now. So address those two things in a Absolutely. Well, and so first of all, like part of why I wrote this book is because I wanted people to be able to, to read about these issues and how they've happened historically in our country. Yes. And so like, I hate to be like, you should read my book and you no, should, you should. everybody should. <laughs> but I feel like that's the, like, I, like I, I genuinely address a lot of this in there because it is something that has come up over and over and over again. This is not the first time it used to be the Democrats who were what we call the restrictionists, the people yes. who wanted to close the doors because they were, you know, pro union. This was like in the time of the union. And like, we don't want any more of quote unquote, those people coming to take our jobs. And so part of what I did, this, the history in the, in the sections, there are three sections, right? One about Munah, one about Hasna, and one about the history. And part of what I was hoping to show is Munah, this is who we were as a country under George W. Bush. And when we resettled refugees under Hasna, this is who we've become. And then with the history section, is this really who we want to be? Not just like who we want to be now, but in history, these are the ways that these debates have cropped up over time. This isn't new, though the scope of it is really new. And I, I really want us to have some kind of massive 
questioning of like there in some ways we've always been this way right we've always had these arguments about those so the two arguments that you named were perfect that's exactly right safety and economics right and so we've had these arguments about starting with the chinese exclusion act in 1888 i don't think that's the name of it but like 1888 and like in the 1890s there was all this you know prejudice against people from china and we've sw- we've switched the names people from italy or people that were irish or people that were polish or whoever it was that we were kind of against they're going to bring diseases they're going to do all these things and and it's it's ludicrous it's the same argument that we keep having and we can have good conversations about who is allowed to come to our country. We don't, I'm, I don't think anybody reasonable is saying, let's just drop the borders and just have a free for all. Right. But, but this is not, this is not the way to do it. So this kind of capricious, like one day to the next, you are allowed to come and now you're not allowed to come because you're from this country or you are allowed to come and now you're not allowed to come because you're of your faith or because of the color of your skin is really a shift for us. Right. So the, I yeah, and as Christians, how can we be okay with that? I mean, as believers, like, that is exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught and how he lived. So go ahead and and interrupt you. No, no, you're fine. I call it better safe than sorryism because I think that's the thing. I feel like that's the most pernicious for us is like, I don't know what I think. So probably it's just better to go ahead and close the doors. Like they might be terrorists or they might come to kill me. So it's better for us to do this. Mm -hmm. And in my book, I talk about all the instances, not all of them, but several of the instances in history when better safe than sorryistic policies happened. And we look back on those. It's probably better for us to just go ahead and round up everyone from Japan and put them in a concentration camp. You know what might be be better? Just to be safe. We might as well just kill all of the Sioux tribe around us because they might be out to hurt us. We might as well just decimate them. We don't know what's going to happen, so we might as well just take care of it. I mean, this is not as if this is not new for us, and yet we have to recognize that the people who pay the costs of this are, are, it's never us. It's never like, nobody's going to come and camp out on my beautiful suburban lawn. What is happening is going, the cost is going to be paid by people like Hosna and others. And the God that I serve is the God that runs to those places, not the God that spends a lot of his time really making sure that I have a beautiful lawn. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Oh, there's so much here, Jessica. We have like couple few minutes left tell me what you want to is there anything we didn't say that you want to add I mean I have so many I knew we wouldn't get to everything so um just kind of end where I don't know like their goals of the book or what you hope to see happen and what you what your hope is for this country in the future of refugees you know I hope that we get back to the point where we can have more reasonable conversations not just about refugees but everything else and I think um part of what I I am committed to making sure that people recognize that there are real people who are in the middle of this that you can't dismiss this I can't tell you how often I've had people tell me like we don't need to get political if by political we mean talking about who is safe and who gets to have access to medicine and who gets to have education for their kids I, yeah, I, that's that's all I've got to talk about. Those, right. those are the it's only a privilege not talk to about. talk about mm-hmm. politics mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not, it doesn't have to be partisan. Yeah. It definitely has to be political though, because whose body is allowed to be with the rest of their family is being mandated yeah. by our government. And so, for me, I feel like. I I know a lot of people that are listening to this don't know what they think about a lot of things or they have real strong opinions, but are, have, have had things shifted. That has happened, I think for both of us over the last, for me, it's been a a 20 year process and it has been really complicated. Part of why I wrote this book is because I want people to be able to 
wrestle with these things quietly. So often we wrestle with these things by going to other countries and then doing damage while we're dealing with us. And I wanted to have kind of a quiet space where you could read and listen and learn and connect with former refugees and hear what's actually happening. And I wanted to have a book that people could hand to their relative and say, listen, I don't know how to have this conversation with you, but just read this and let's talk about it. And I, it, it really matters to me that this is not a, this is not a partisan book. This is yeah. a, this is a book about who we could, who we, who we have always been and who we could be. And you did that beautifully because yeah. that's, again, that's why I probably haven't finished. I've always finished the books, but I haven't yours because I'm really just trying to digest that. And I don't, mm-hmm. these are stories I don't want to just skim through. Mm-hmm. And what you just said about giving it to family or friends mm-hmm. that you think I, that has gone through my mind as well, because it's not a book that's like bashing mm-hmm. certain political and administration. I mean, you're just telling some of the facts and you're putting these women's real, real life stories in there and you did it beautifully. And I just, I know it was a labor of love for you. So I just, mm-hmm. I do, I thank you for bringing this into the world because I know mm-hmm. as overwhelmed as you feel with the people and your friends and other countries, just pouring things out to you and you taking that on, I mean, you are doing your part and this book is a huge part of that. And now the awareness that you're bringing by going on podcasts and speaking, I mean, God is using you and you're being faithful. And I think back to when you were tired and didn't want to go to that (laughs) fall festival. And it's like, that is the big lesson here. God puts it on your heart to go to something, especially helping people. It's easier to take a nap, but. And I think so often people think like, you know, I could never do that. I don't have those relationships. I don't have, I didn't either. This isn't something that happened because I, you know, was born and raised in a particular area of the world. What I, I just, I happened to connect and, and became friends with and one step led to another. And I, I know I'm not the only person that feels uncomfortable and afraid of hurting of, of the pain that it's going to cause to have difficult conversations. And also like, I can't sleep at night if I don't yeah. say something. And, I, and I've, I've learned to lean into that. Like, I, I feel like those are the places that God is calling us. If you can't sleep because you're thinking, I know that my voting a certain way or my relatives and I'm the person that can have that conversation and families are being separated and I've got to do something. I, I think that those are holy voices. I really do. Yeah, I agree. And it is easier just not, I mean, we're both white women. It would be really easy just not to engage yeah. or enter that world. And honestly, if it wasn't for my, I have a almost 18 year old, she went to Germany, gosh, how many years ago, four years ago and worked with refugees. And mm. that just, her experience there changed her and it changed me because of yeah. the things she told me. And that yeah. was just from working and knowing, working directly with refugees and hearing the stories. Yeah. And it changes you. Yeah, um, it really does. And, and I think should. that's, yeah. And that's the message. Okay, Jessica, I know you have a meeting coming up. So tell my listeners where you can be found. Um, and I also want to bring up that you do an IG, is it just on IG live that you have the interviews um, with refugees? Tell us just a little bit about what that is. Oh yeah. That's and something where people, I, yeah, okay. That's you were looking at me funny. Time. I'm like, did no, I make no, this up? No, no, okay. you get it right. It's just right. It's just right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was, yeah, it, so you can find me at jessicagadog.com and it's G-O-U-D-E-A-U and it has links to all of my, you know, social media stuff and, and all of that, some stuff about the book and a little bit about, you know, my background and how I, the stories and stuff. Um, I have started this thing called Discussions with Displaced People in part just for exactly the reason that we're talking about. I happen to hear stories from people all the time and I just want to allow people to listen to these stories. And so every week or so without there's, it's not a certain day because it's really just based on the, 
availability of people that I know. I've had three episodes so far, and it has been incredibly rewarding to feature the voices of people that we otherwise might not hear from. And I'm just yeah. asking them some questions and letting them letting them talk. So it just gives people a chance to really listen in to the people that I get to talk to on a daily basis and, and really see. So that's you're welcome. Yeah, go to you can go to Instagram and and listen to that. It's on my IGTV discussions okay. with this. Yes. Yes. Jessica, thank you. Thank you so much for just your voice and sharing the voice and the stories of these women who otherwise wouldn't be able to. Yeah. You're doing God's work and I just I thank you for it. Yeah, I pre I'm so grateful to be on this program for the amazing work that you're doing as well. I, I just think these are great conversations. Thank you. I know I recommend a lot of books on this podcast, but Jessica's book is one I really recommend that you put at the top of your list for this year. The stories she shares and After the Last Border reveal not just how America's changing attitudes towards refugees have influenced policies and law, but it also shows the profound effect on human lives. As always, I'll put the link to purchase the book on this episode's show notes, and I'll also link Jessica's website. A portion of the royalties from the book sales go to Hasna and Munah towards helping them buy plane tickets to see their families once it's safe to do so. Jessica's website and the show notes also have a contact form to send a message of encouragement to Hasna and Munah. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast.